are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hey everybody, David Guzik here. So glad you could join me and sorry that it's taken a couple minutes to get online here. I don't know what happened. Every once in a while I have these technical problems and uh, I guess I'm still trying to figure out this YouTube live thing just a little bit. So anyway, I wanted to start off our live Q&A time today by talking about a specific question. And the question goes back to a scripture passage that many of you are familiar with. I'm talking about Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. I would not be surprised if some of you have this verse on a refrigerator magnet at home right now or posted up on a wall or some inspirational scene somewhere pointed out. Jeremiah 29, 11, and it says that God promises a future and a hope for his people. And my question simply is, is this promise for us? Does God promise us a future and a hope? Because I've heard some people talk about this particular verse, Jeremiah 29, verse 11, and say, it's not for you. That was for ancient Israel. It's not for you. Don't claim it to yourself. And so I think it's a very interesting thing to consider. Is this a promise for us? Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. Let me read those verses to you. I'm going to start at verse 10. It says, for thus says the Lord. After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Now going on to verse 12, then you will call upon me and go pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me for all with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. All right, so this is the general point here. The simple idea is, is that yes, Jeremiah chapter 29 was written to Israel in the Babylonian exile. There's no doubt about that. that. That's the time, that's the setting, that's the audience of the book of Jeremiah. I, I have an exhaustive teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Yes, that is what it's about. Nevertheless, we understand not every promise in the Bible is a, present, is a promise for us. Let me give you an example. God promised Israel that if they marched around the city of Jericho seven times, and seven times on the seventh day that God would cause the walls of this city to fall down and they would be able to miraculously conquer what was thought to be an impenetrable city. Well, let me just tell you, folks, you can march around a city seven times if you want. You can march around seven times on the seventh day. God's promise that the walls are going to fall down, that promise isn't for you. That was a promise God made for ancient Israel and not for his people today. So we recognize that not every promise that God made to his ancient people in the Bible is a promise for us today. Nevertheless, I have no problem in taking this promise as being a promise that is valid for believers today. In other words, I do believe that God says to the believer today that same principle of Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, 
thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Now, I don't think that that's a universal promise. In other words, I don't think that God says that to all of humanity without reservation. But I believe it is a promise extended to God's people even under the new covenant. See, a lot of what we have to understand in the Bible is that the people to whom Jeremiah first wrote, ancient Israel, Israel under the exile, they were under the old covenant, sometimes called the Mosaic covenant, sometimes called the Sinai covenant, but it was the covenant that God made with Israel there and at Mount Sinai uh, during the Exodus journey from Egypt to the promised land. Now, this old covenant had certain promises, had certain principles, and God promised that he would restore disobedient and exiled Israel. And really, that's what this promise of Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 is all about. It's God's promise of restoration to Israel. Now, here's my simple principle, is that God here is making this promise. And should we expect that God would be less gracious, less giving, less uh, having a heart for restoration under the new covenant than he had under the old covenant. Brothers and sisters, I just have to say no. No. Now, we have to say that there's a sense in which this prophecy tempered the expectation of God's people because there were false prophets in Jeremiah's day that said that not only would they be returning from exile, but that it would happen very quickly. God says in these very verses, that yes, they would return from exile, but it wouldn't be for 70 years. And it was true. After 70 years of exile, then they received the permission to return back to the land. And a small percentage, you might call it a remnant of the Jewish people, returned back to the land. But they didn't even have that hope. They didn't have that possibility for 70 years. So they would be restored. It wasn't going to happen quickly, but it would happen because God is a God of restoration. God is a God of of bringing things back together again. I know it's a little bit of a cliche, but some of these cliches are true, that, that God is the God of the second chance. So here in this promise in Jeremiah chapter 29, 11, it says that God thinks toward his people. That's not just under the old covenant. It's under the new covenant as well, the covenant that Jesus established by his work at the cross. So we should not expect that God would be less gracious under the new covenant that he was under the old covenant. Brothers and sisters, understand the promise of Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 was not originally made to you. It was originally made to ancient Israel, but the principle of it rings true for God's people throughout generations and even more so under the new covenant, which every believer in Jesus Messiah belongs to. So I do think that you can say that the promise of a future and a hope is for you if you are in Jesus Christ. That's God's promise for you. You have a future. You have a hope. Now, let me say this. If you reject Jesus Christ, if you push him away, if you push away God's provision of a Messiah, then I don't know what kind of future, I don't know what kind of hope you have outside of Jesus. Because Jesus is our future. Jesus is our hope. Don't take down that refrigerator magnet. Count it in good context. Don't take down that inspirational poster. It was originally a promise made to Israel, but I can say without reservation, it applies to God's people today because God is even more gracious under the new covenant 
than he was under the old. He's even more into restoring and rebuilding and bringing his people back from exile under this new covenant than he was under the old. So I hope that principle helps some people. And again, I hope that principle helps us in understanding that we need to understand to whom God's promises were first made, but then understand whether or not and discern accurately whether or not those promises apply to us today. Because it's true, not every promise in the Bible is for us, but we rejoice in the ones that are. Okay, let's go to the questions and the comments that are in our chat window here on the side. Thank you to all those who've joined. I guess I have to give my just my expected comment. Make sure you click the thumbs up. If you haven't subscribed to the YouTube channel, do that. Click the little bell that indicates notifications. And let's get through and kind of talk about the questions that people have submitted here. First one is from Sean. Hi, Sean. Nice to see you again. It says, if we are grafted into the family of God, as it says in Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 31, then we can claim Jeremiah 29, 11 as well. Well, that's a good point, John. We have a continuity. Now, I believe very much in the idea of a covenant theology. Although the way that that term covenant theology is used in the world of reform theology, I don't agree with their understanding of covenant theology. But I believe that the idea of covenants as revealed in the Bible is very important. That being said, we need to understand and appreciate that there is a continuity of God's people and God's work throughout the generations. Yes, there are different aspects of his working. The old covenant is not the new covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is not the new covenant. The new covenant is the new covenant. Nevertheless, there is a common thread. There is some degree of continuity among God's people throughout every generation. Good point, Sean. Okay, next is from Menashe. And they ask, what do you think Paul's thorn in the flesh was? Do you think we all have a thorn in the flesh? Is it simply just something preventing us from fulfilling our potential in God? Menashe, that's a great question. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, but that is a great question. And I'm going to turn to that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, where it speaks of Paul's thorn in the flesh. And I hope to bring a little bit of clarity because you bring up some very interesting points in your question. First of all, you ask me, what do I think Paul's thorn in the flesh was? And let me give you a firm answer. We don't know. And can I tell you, we should be grateful that we don't know. You see, not knowing is a benefit. It's not because let's say we knew exactly what uh, Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Now, if you forced me to estimate what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, I would estimate that it was some kind of physical uh, disability. Uh, some people think that Paul had a kind of malarial fever that afflicted him. Some people think he suffered from migraines. Some people think that he had eye trouble that contributed to migraines. We could give a lot of speculation as to what physical infirmities Paul may have suffered. There's little hints towards these things in scripture. Nothing, you know, absolutely firm, but there are some hints. Okay. If you had to pin me down and say that it was something uh, physical, and you had to pin me down and say, okay, Paul's thorn in the flesh were migraine headaches caused by vision problems. Then let's say, instead of saying thorn in the flesh, Paul said, my migraine headaches caused by vision problems 
uh, Jesus Christ is able to work in the midst of him. You know, the wording there in 1 Corinthians 12, but he gave the specific description of what it was. You know what my unbelieving heart would do? And actually my unbelieving heart would say that God's promise of provision is only good for people that suffer migraine headaches from vision problems. God deliberately left it broad and left it unstated so that we could understand that his grace is sufficient for us in all of our trials, in all of our sufferings. That it isn't just some small group of specific trials or sufferings that God has sufficient grace for, but he has sufficient grace for us in everything. So we don't know. I, if I had to guess, I would say it was some kind of physical infirmity, but we don't really know. Now, the second thing you ask is, do we all have a thorn in the flesh? I don't think we all have a thorn in the flesh in the way that Paul meant it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If you read the passage, Paul says that he received this thorn in the flesh because he had received such amazing vision and revelation from God that God deliberately gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. Now, can I just say that many of us, we don't need a special message from God in order to recognize our human weakness. We provide quite enough weakness all on our own. But Paul was a man of such maturity and of such spiritual blessing and experience that God had to introduce some kind of weakness into his life so that Paul would consciously depend upon God and the end effect would make Paul stronger, not weaker. Remember that great phrase here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, where Jesus said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul experienced this marvelous perfected strength of God but only because he was consciously aware of his own weakness and looked to God for strength instead of himself. And this is the great message for us, Menashe. Whether we have a thorn in the flesh, we should recognize our weakness in the flesh. And recognizing our weakness in the flesh should make us men and women in Jesus Christ who say, I need to depend upon Jesus. I need to look to Jesus and not to self. The key to the Christian life is not trying harder. Although I will say, there is a time and a place for trying harder. And sometimes we as believers need to hear that. But the core of the Christian life is not trying harder. The core of the Christian life is looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Great question, Menashe. Let me go on to the next one. Sean says, hi, pastor. Love you. Pray for CBI. They graduate soon. He's talking about Calvary Bible Institute in Joshua uh, Springs, there, uh, California. I visited, lectured there for a week or for a day, actually, earlier this year and enjoyed it immensely. Thanks for that reminder, Sean. Next one, Horatio says, hi, David. Wait, I'll ask your question. Hi, David. Greetings from Lima, Peru. Hey, nice to know that we have Peruvian uh, viewers here today. Greetings from Lima, Peru. In Hebrews 9.13, it says that heavenly things needed to be purified. Can you explain this? Well, let me turn over to that because I want to make sure I have the phrasing of that verse correctly. Hebrews chapter 9, taking a look at verse 13, where it says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the 
purifying of the flesh, how much more should the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Uh, I don't think you actually meant Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13, because that's just where I read. Uh, but I think it's in that chapter. And I know the verse that you're speaking of, where it specifically speaks of um, Jesus doing this work, having to do with heavenly things. And I think this is what we're getting at, is that the work of Jesus's atonement could not be demonstrated in the earthly temple. It had to be demonstrated in heaven. Now, the thing that was impure in heaven that had to be cleansed was God's people who were on their way to heaven. There's nothing in heaven that was impure that needed to be purified. But God's people, in order to be in heaven, are those things in future anticipation. Those are the things that needed to be purified by the atonement of Jesus Christ. But since the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 9 is making a contrast between the earthly temple or tabernacle and the heavenly model for those things, because in some way, I think in some way we can't fully comprehend, the tabernacle and the temple following were actually a uh, model of God's throne room in heaven. The, the bottom line being this, is that it was not the earthly copy of those things that Jesus purified that he uh, applied his atonement towards. It was towards the heavenly original perfected that he applied those things. If there's anything imperfect that needed to be purified by Jesus's atonement in heaven, it's God's people who are destined for heaven. They needed that covering of atonement. Good question there, Horatio. Okay, uh, Manashi gives another question. What is eternal life, not heaven, but to feel like the Bible makes mention of is something we can have on earth? Well, Manashi, I like to put it this way. You're asking the question, what is eternal life? And in a sense, does eternal life begin now? I like to have the idea that eternal life, we go back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or you could use the idea of eternal life. Now, this idea of eternal life or everlasting life, it's not something that begins when we die. Eternal life, everlasting life begins right now. It's something that we receive in Jesus Christ as his promise right here, right now. So considering this is that for us in our experience of eternal life, everlasting life now, it is what Jesus would call the abundant life later on. Remember what Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He said that in the gospel of John, this abundant life full of the peace of God, marked by the power of God, uh, filled with the presence of God. These things mark everlasting life, eternal life, abundant life for the believer right here, right now. So Manesh, I hope that answer helps you. Let me move on. Alice. Hi, Alice. Nice to speak with you again. Hi, David. Is it not possible that Paul heard the gospel from the Christians he was persecuting? Didn't the other apostles doubt that he received it from God only? Well, that's very interesting, Alice. You're asking the question if it's possible. Now, I want you to understand, and again, I'm thinking of some passages from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. I can't quote you the chapter and verse on this. Maybe some of our listeners can put it in the live chat, look it up. But Paul insisted 
that he received his gospel not from man. I think he may also make reference of this in Galatians. That he received his gospel not from man, but by direct revelation from Jesus Christ, which made him somewhat unusual. The normal pattern for somebody to receive the gospel is from one person to pass it on to them. A preacher, whether that be a formal preacher, somebody who preaches the teaches the word of God, like me or somebody else, or whether it be an informal preacher, somebody who's just a messenger of God's truth and God's word, like everybody in God's family is supposed to be at least an informal preacher. Okay, the idea is simply this. Paul insisted that he did not receive his gospel from a person, a human person, a, a flesh and blood person on this earth, but by direct revelation of the ascended enthroned Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Now, is it possible that some Christians with whom Paul had contact in the uh, context of his persecution, is it possible that some of them shared the gospel with him? It's entirely possible. But for whatever reason, his hearing of the gospel in that moment, it didn't register. It didn't click. It was as if he never heard it. No, it awaited the revelation that he received. Paul makes it very clear that he did not receive his gospel from man, but from Jesus himself. So I hope that helps you. They may have heard it. i tell you what Paul did get for sure is there were Christians praying for him. Now we know this for a fact because Stephen, the first martyr of the church, prayed for Paul even as he was being martyred. He prayed for all of those who persecuted him, which included Saul of Tarsus, later we know as Paul the apostle. So Paul was prayed for by Stephen and I'm sure others as well. And uh, whether or not they heard the gospel from him, well, it doesn't seem that he heard the gospel in a way that registered with him, but maybe those words were spoken to him. Okay, let's continue on. Thank you for that question, Alice. Nice to hear from you. William gives this question. Good to see you again, Pastor Guzik. Uh, good to see you guys too. I sure enjoy it whenever I can do one of these Thursday afternoon live chats. I, I don't mind recording one and putting it on for you to watch at 12 noon on Thursdays, but I don't mind telling you, I greatly prefer it when we can do it live chat. Anyway, good to see you again, Pastor Guzik. What are your thoughts on the body, mind, spirit, and soul? What is the difference between the spirit and the soul? Thanks. God's bless. You are a great blessing. Well, thank you, William. You're asking about something that is pretty controversial in theology and in Christian studies. Now, I fully acknowledge that many, many Christians don't even care about this at all. But among some Christians, it is a matter of some debate whether we as people, as human beings, as spiritual beings, whether or not we are made up of two parts or whether or not we are made up of three parts. The debate is sometimes put in these terms, whether or not we are a dichotomy, referring to two, or whether or not we are a trichotomy, referring to three parts. Okay, two or three. Now, I would call myself a soft trichotomist. And I, this is the reason why I'm soft. I do believe that we are a body, a soul, and a spirit. And I believe that there is some distinction to be made between the soul and the spirit. I believe the soul basically refers to that immaterial aspect of the human being that can reflect the inner life that isn't necessarily spiritual. Uh, when I am moved by music and it inspires me and it charges me up, 
That is something that is appealing to my soul. It may or may not be spiritual at all. I may be spiritually dead and yet greatly affected on a soulish level by something. So there is a immaterial part of the human being that can be affected that is apart from the spiritual. Then there is the spiritual, that which is birthed in us by the spirit of God. Now, there is some difficulty to this, and this is why I acknowledge I am a soft trichotomist, is that there are certainly some passages, I'll even say several passages in the scripture, where soul and spirit are used synonymously. The scriptures don't always make a distinction between the soul and the spirit, but they sometimes do. And because of those sometimes verses, I take it that there is some distinction to be made between the soul and the spirit. So I, I hope that's helpful for you. Uh, sometimes people define the spirit, excuse me, the soul as the mind, the will, and the emotions. I don't know if that's the best definition of the soul, but I got to say, I haven't heard a better one. Mind, will, and emotions. That's something that every human being has. Uh, whether or not they are born again by God's spirit or not, whether or not they are alive spiritually or not. Mind, will, and emotions, that's what make up, maybe not entirely, but mostly the soulish part of a person. But then there is a spiritual level, a spiritual level that is above and beyond the soulish level, something that is born in us by the spirit of God. So sometimes the scriptures make a distinction between soul and spirit. Other times the scriptures use those terms synonymously. That's why it's a bit difficult. Okay, let me keep going on. Mark says, greetings. I love your commentary. Uh, he's referring to my online Bible commentary. You can go to enduringword.com. And at enduringword.com, you will find a commentary written through the entire Bible. Uh, it's taken me many years of work. You could say that it's my life's work and it's under continual revision and improvement. But uh, thank you, Mark. I'm glad that that commentaries have some helped you. It says, greetings, love your commentaries. My question is, when are we absent from the body as believers? Will we be present with the Lord? Are non-believers absent from the body and present in hell? All right, Mark. First of all, um, this is a debatable issue among Christians. So I'm not going to try to give you every Christian understanding of this. I'll just give you my understanding of this. And not that it's mine alone. There's plenty of people who share this opinion of mine. But I just want to let you know what I'm going to share with you now. It's not a universal opinion among Christians. There are Christians who love the Lord and honor the Bibles who look at this a different way. But I'll give you my understanding of this. Is that, first of all, technically speaking, and again, I'm saying technically speaking, there is no one in hell at the present time. There are the uh, judged, those who die apart from Jesus Christ, those who are not in the Lord at their death. They are in a place of suffering and torment, but that is the place of Hades. From my understanding of the book of Revelation and other aspects in the New Testament, I would say that at the great white throne judgment, God takes those people who are in Hades and he consigns them to what we normally think of as hell or the lake of fire or Gehenna, to use the Hebrew term. That technically is hell. Hades, though it is not a place of blessing, it is not a place of comfort, it's a place of torment, as seen by the story 
that Jesus gave in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. It's a place of torment, but it is not technically yet the lake of fire, which we normally think of as Gehenna or hell. So I believe that people are there in some bodiless sense awaiting what the Bible talks about in the book of Revelation. It's a chilling phrase, Mark. The book of Revelation uses this phrase, the resurrection of condemnation. Consider this, that just as believers will have and need a physical body that is suited for the glories of heaven, so unbelievers who die in judgment will have and will need a physical body suited, so to speak, for the agonies of hell. And the Bible does talk about the resurrection of condemnation. So I, I believe that they yet await that, and that'll happen at or you know concurrently with the great white throne judgment. Hope that question helps you there, or that answer helps you there, Mark. Next up is Lee. Hi, Pastor David. Your message, when the gospel comes in power, was a blessing. Thank you, Lee. We put that up on the YouTube channel. I, I'd recommend it to people. In that message, when the gospel comes with power, just look it up on the YouTube channel. It was put up there in the last couple of weeks. That is my attempt to as clearly as possible define what the gospel is. So it might be of help to some people. Okay, next up, uh, Brian Ramsey says, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, it speaks of saints and all who believe. What is the difference between these groups of people, if any? Okay, that's a great uh, question there, Brian. Let me turn back there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, because I think this is a little bit instructive for us, and I think you phrased the question very well. Let me compliment you then on that, Brian. You say, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers from the wrath to come. Did I get the script? Oh, I'm looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. You clearly said that 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Let me read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. I'll give you my quick take on this. Maybe I would change my mind with a little bit deeper research, but Brian, let me give you my quick take on this. I believe that Paul is referring to the same people here. I believe he, as a Jewish rabbi, is using a somewhat rabbinic pattern of speech, Hebraic pattern of speech, where you repeat things in slightly different ways for the sake of emphasis. We find this throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, this idea of repetition and oftentimes repetition with a slight variation to simply give emphasis. So I don't think he's making a distinction between saints and those who believe in verse 10. Again, I kind of give that provisionally. Maybe if I did some more digging, I'd have up with a different opinion. But my first glance at that makes me say, no, Paul's writing as a good Jewish rabbi steeped in Hebraic thought, loving to give emphasis by repetition in a slightly different way. That would be my take on that, Brian. Great question. Joel asks a question. Good evening. It's afternoon here, Joel. I'm looking out and it's just beautiful sunny day here in Santa Barbara, but I'm sure, Joel, thank you for tuning in in the evening, wherever you are. Good evening. Thanks for your videos. Going through your Hebrew study at the moment, a great blessing. Well, that's the series that we're putting up right now. I have a large archive of videos 
that we're putting up a two or three a week on the YouTube channel. Now, somebody may ask, why don't you just throw them up all at one time? Well, because we don't want those who subscribe to get flooded with a whole flood of videos. So we just put them out two or three a week. And uh, I hope you, I'm very happy to hear, Joel, that it's a benefit to you. I, I love teaching that Hebrew series. Um, Joanne says, I'm on, praise God. Hi, Pastor David. Hi, Joanne, glad you could come on. Monica says, hi, hello, Monica. And Joanne says, Hebrews 3, unable to go to church. I'm wondering if I'm not obeying God, disabled. No, Joanne, let me say. Uh, God sees your heart that wants to obey his word. It's true that Christians are commanded to uh, not forsake the assembling together of the saints, as it says to us in the book of Hebrews. That's a passage you're thinking of. We should not forsake the assembling together of the saints. But if isolation, if physical infirmity, if circumstances of life make us unable to get together in the community of God's people, God sees our heart. And Joanna, I got to say, I'm glad you could make some kind of substitute with what you see here online. I know it's not a full substitute. I know you'd rather be among the people of God in the house of God. And God bless you for that, Joanne. But no, no, you're not disobedient. God sees, God understands. We need to understand that many times in the scriptures, God gives us the ideal, the ideal that admittedly most of us can achieve, but there's some people who can't. And God is always gracious towards those who can't. All right, just a couple more here. Uh, Menashe says again, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, paraphrasing. What more will your Father in heaven give you than the Holy Spirit? What do you think getting more of the Holy Spirit looks like? Well, Menashe, I want you to point out that in that passage in Luke chapter 11, where he says, uh, what more will your Father in heaven give you? He's not talking about more of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the certainty of receiving the Holy Spirit, just as we can be certain that a father wants to give to his children. God is an even greater father than the best earthly father. So he certainly wants to give to his children, especially the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the emphasis there is not really on the more of receiving more of the Holy Spirit but the more of being more certain that God wants to give good things, especially the gift of the Holy Spirit to his children here today. So that means, Menashe, we can pray for a continual filling and supply of the Holy Spirit in our life and be sure that God wants to supply it. We can ask that with real confidence. Okay, a couple more here. Monica says, is there anywhere in the Holy Bible that says that the Holy Spirit will come in human form after Jesus Christ gives humans the second birth of the Spirit? Monica, there is nothing in the Bible that gives us that idea. There is nothing in the Holy Bible that gives us the idea that the Holy Spirit will come in any human form. The closest we come is in the Gospels where it says, that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus as if a dove. It doesn't say that the Holy Spirit was a dove, but just sort of in the floaty, beautiful, descending way that a dove might descend, that's how the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. But the Holy Spirit is never directly represented in a human form. So uh, no, Monica, I, I can tell you that the, whole, that the Holy Bible, the scriptures were given, do not speak to that. Uh, Mark, thank you. It's a chilling concept. Resurrection condemnation. Yes, it is indeed, Mark. And then um, 
Parago says, good evening. Good afternoon, Pastor David. What do you think about women as pastors? Is there any verse in the Bible that tells us that women are not allowed to be pastors? Okay, Parago, I'm gonna defer that question to be a lead-off question in a future YouTube video. I do recommend to you that I have taught on this in some depth in my message on uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Isn't that the great passage there? 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul speaks about, yes, no, actually, um, yes, 1 Timothy chapter 2. You can look up on the YouTube channel. It's on our YouTube channel. You can look it up there. Um, most specifically, I do believe that God has specific roles for men and women in both the home and the church. I understand that that's not how our culture sees it. I understand that that's not how many in the church see it today. I can't get away from the scriptural evidence, which I believe argues very strong for the idea of there being complementary yet different roles for men and women in the church. That's something for us to deal with in much more depth, but I do recommend to you the video I have in 1 Timothy chapter 2. You can get it there on our YouTube channel. Well, God bless you. Menashe says that they never opened their Bible now without having enduring word. Barclay and Spurgeon's commentary is open. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I appreciate everybody who turns in. Okay, let me, this is one last question. Sabrina says, uh, what denomination are you? All right, Sabrina, that's a little bit of a complicated question just to say this. I am part of what some people call a non-denominational denomination. In other words, we're something of a denomination, but we're not in totality a denomination. I come from something called the Calvary Chapel uh, family of churches. This is a work that I believe God established through a great man and pastor, Chuck Smith, who some five years ago or so has gone on to his reward in heaven. He's passed away. Uh, but there is a network of some 2,000 or more Calvary Chapel churches throughout the world. And we are a loosely connected family of churches that is somewhat non-denominational. That is the church background that I come from, uh, but I try to emphasize a ministry to the entire body of Christ. But I'm very grateful for my Calvary Chapel roots, uh, my Calvary Chapel upbringing. Uh, for me, it's been a tremendous blessing. So uh, I hope that's helpful for you. Uh, do I believe in baptism? Yes, I do, Sabrina. I do believe in baptism. That's a question for another time too that I really enjoy talking about. In any regard, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you for being a part of our question and answer, either live or watching this afternoon. I wanna give special thanks to everybody who tunes in live and submits these questions and makes it possible. And a special thanks to those who pray for the work of Enduring Word. Please keep our ongoing work of providing what we hope are quality Bible resources absolutely free all around the world and in an increasing number of languages. It's a big work and uh, just keep praying that God gives us everything we need to make that happen. God bless you and thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.